All right, so it's, it's hard to believe that we're ready to, to start a new year. It's just a few days away, so I imagine many of you, like me, have made a New Year's resolution or two. Um, one of the best things about the new year is that when that calendar turns over, it gives us the opportunity to symbolically wipe the slate clean, to, to start fresh. Although if we're honest, we would admit that we're not really good at New Year's resolutions. We flame out pretty quickly. Um, I go to the gym three or four times a week and have done so for many, many years. And January is the most crowded month uh, at the gym. And then by March, it's just the regulars uh, are still there. It's, it's hard to keep a New Year's resolution. So today, what I'd like to do is... Uh, share some thoughts on how to make a New Year's resolution that will last, and I want to do it from the first few verses of the first chapter of the book of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is one of the 12 minor prophets who preached and wrote between the 9th and 5th century B.C. The minor prophets give us the earliest and the latest written prophecies concerning the kingdom of God. Now, it's important to understand that they're not called minor because they're unimportant. They're called minor because they're brief. In all 12 of the minor prophets, there are 67 chapters compared to Isaiah, which in Isaiah itself, it's just 66 chapters. There are 1,050 verses all told in the minor prophets. That's less than any one of the major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah. Jeremiah or Daniel. Even when the Bible was not put together into one book, the scholars recognized the value of these tiny, precious works of God. So what they did was they sewed them all together into one scroll so they, they wouldn't be lost. Now, Zechariah is the longest of the minor prophets. It's 14 chapters, and it is by far the most difficult to understand. It's, it's called the apocalypse of the Old Testament. Now, a, apocalypse is the removal of that which hides something. It's an unveiling. And what Zechariah prophetically unveils is the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He prophesies his life, his ministry, and his suffering. All of those, all of them, every single one of his prophecies were fulfilled. Zechariah is confirmed as a true prophet of God by those fulfilled prophecies. Now, he also spoke about the end times, things which are yet to have come. And Zechariah prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled because of the accuracy of the prophecies of his first coming, we can be certain that what Zechariah prophesies that has yet to happen will indeed happen. This book is so important because it gives us a remarkable picture of the first and the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, Zechariah is cited or alluded to 40 times in the New Testament. But today we're not going to, to look at his prophecies. We're going to focus on the very practical message of the first three verses 
of the first chapter. So if you have a Bible, open your Bible to Zechariah. Just start at the beginning of the New Testament and work your way back a couple of pages, Malachi and then Zechariah, the very first chapter. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen. And if you don't have a Bible and you would like a Bible, we would love to give you one. You just go over to our bookstore across the courtyard and they'll be happy to give you a free Bible. So let's read. Verse 1, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, we have to have a little bit of context in order to understand what's happening here. So I want to give you a quick history lesson on what's going on in Israel, beginning in 931 B.C., which is when Solomon died. Solomon was the last of the three kings who led a unified nation. After, Zechari- after Solomon's death, um, the nation was split into two. Ten tribes in the north was called Israel, and two tribes in the south were called Judah. And for the next 200 years, um, people in both nations were extremely disobedient. They had turned away from God. They hated each other. It was, a, it was a very, very bad time in the history of Israel. And God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to let them know the warnings of being in disobedience to God. Well, unfortunately, especially in the northern kingdom, uh, they did not heed those warnings. So in 722 B.C., God allowed the Assyrians to attack the northern kingdom, defeat their army, kill a vast number of those people, and take the balance who survived into exile into Assyria. None of those tribes are ever heard from again. God said to people of Judah, look guys, this is a warning to you. If you don't turn away from the way you're living, the same thing is going to happen to you. Unfortunately, they didn't heed that warning either. And about 140 years later, in 586 B.C., God allowed the Babylonians to attack Jerusalem, defeat the army of the southern kingdom, again, kill vast numbers of people, and take the balance who survived into exile in Babylon. God had given the people of Israel, through the prophet Habakkuk, the exact information that the Babylonians would come and bring consequences against Israel if they didn't turn, and that's exactly what happened. God also told Habakkuk that that would last for about 50 years, which indeed is exactly what happened. People of Israel um, actually did well in, in Babylon, but in 538 B.C., God allowed the Persians to defeat the Babylonians, And Cyrus, the leader of the Persians, in 536 B.C., just two years after taking over the really virtually the the authority over the whole world, issued a decree to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem. Remarkably, not everyone did. About 50,000 of the remnant returned to Israel with the express direction to construct the temple, to restore the temple that was lying in ruins in the, in the midst of a city that was lying in ruins. God said, your first priority is to rebuild the temple. As soon as they got back in 536 BC, they went to work. 
and it lasted just a couple of months. It was a very hard job, and they got a lot of opposition from the nations around them. So they came up with this great idea. Let's get our homes established. Let's get our businesses and farms working and operating, and then we'll get back to building the temple. Sixteen years later, no temple. And the people mired in frustration. So God sends the prophet Haggai to encourage the people to return to the building of the temple. He came in August of 520 B.C. He brought a message to the people to consider their ways to turn back and re uh, rebuild the temple, and they listened to him, and they went to work. Well, we can tell from, from verse 1 that Zechariah spoke exactly two months after Haggai first message. When we look at verse 1, it says, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius. So that tells us that we know when Darius became king, that tells us that his message actually came in October of 520 BC. It's interesting that uh, Haggai and Zechariah are the only two prophets who use a pagan king in order to date their work. Um, it, it shows how far the nation of Israel had fallen under secular rather than spiritual leadership. So it's October of 520 BC. And at this point, the hope of the nation of Israel was practically extinguished. They were under Persian rule. They had no constitution. They had no power. So it, it certainly must have seemed to this feeble remnant that there was very little hope for the future or in accomplishing the monumental task that lay ahead of them, rebuilding the temple. The particular value of Zechariah's message was that it aimed to inspire hope in the hearts of a discouraged people that things could change. So how did he do it? Let's look again at verse 1. After we see the second year of Darius, it says, The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah wanted those people to know that this wasn't just him speaking. He was a young man at this time and had probably very little authority. He wanted to establish right up front that his authority came from God, that he had a divine commission to be the mouthpiece of God, that the instructions that he was bringing to them were not his, but God's, directly to the people from God. So the first step of encouragement was to let them know that God was still speaking to them. And then the second part of encouragement, also right there in verse 1, is the family tree. Uh, we get the names of uh, Zechariah, his father Berechiah, and his grandfather Iddo. Zechariah means God remembers. Berechiah means God blesses. And Iddo means at the right time. That is the theme of the message of Zechariah. That God remembers his people. That God blesses his people and he will do it at the exact right time. So where the message came from and who brought the message was the beginning of the encouragement that Zechariah was bringing to the people of Israel. Now, if you look at the next verse, you'd have to think that it's a little bit odd that he would start a message of encouragement by saying that the Lord was very angry with your fathers. In fact, it's hard to 
in English to really get the sense of, of that Hebrew word. Very angry is, is the word katsaf. And it literally means to be angry with anger. Zechariah is making it very clear that God hates sin. God's wrath against evil is a permanent, unalterable fact. Of course, God is full of love and mercy, but in his holiness, he cannot and does not take our sin lightly. God is love. But he is not like some doting, indulgent grandfather who dismisses our sin with, oh, honey, it's okay. Don't worry that you've cheated on your wife and you've stolen from your boss. I just want you to be happy. No, God's holy and righteous character must always punish sin. We have to recognize that God's wrath against sin is in keeping with his infinitely holy character. He cannot look at sin with indifference. He cannot just shrug it off. That which falls short of his standard must be judged. And that makes him good. When we think about a recent uh, story of this affluenza teenager, 16-year-old, who in a drunken stupor killed four innocent people and injured others. And this judge let him off with nothing but probation. We can't say that that was good, that that was judged appropriately. But God judges sin appropriately. 1 John 4, 16 says that God is love, and that is absolutely true. But Hebrews 12, 29 also says that God is a consuming fire. He's both. He's a consuming fire as well as a God of love. And for us who, who love him and desire to follow him and desire to be like him, we need to hate our sin the same way that God does. Uh, in the Old Testament times, um, in order to demonstrate grief or sadness, the Jewish people would tear their clothes. God said to them very clearly, rend your hearts, not your garments. What God is saying is, I don't want an outward show of sadness. I want your hearts literally broken over your sin. I want you to hate that sin. It is the parallel verse to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where Paul compares worldly sorrow that hates the consequences, that hates the fact that they got caught, to godly sorrow that hates the sin and recognizes it, that it's a sin against God and against him alone. And you see, I believe that God's anger at sin is actually a, a message of hope. Because it lets us know the danger we face if we don't deal with our sin. We have to understand the bad news of God's hatred of our sin and the reality of the consequences we'll face for disobedience before we can appreciate the good news of God's mercy and God's forgiveness. Until we know we're sick, we don't look for a remedy. So God lets them know that he's angry at their sin, so they'll seek the remedy. And God doesn't leave them in suspense or for them to figure it out on their own. He tells them exactly what the remedy is. 
After revealing the problem of God's wrath, Zechariah moves right to the presentation of God's grace. Look at verse 3. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah invites them to return to God, informing the people that God desires to turn away from his anger and offer comfort to the people if they will turn away from their evil and return to him. You see, when God seems distant or silent, it's not because he's gone anywhere or he stopped talking to us. It's because we've moved away. And God gives the solution. There is a way of getting things right with him. And it's called repentance. Which simply means turning away from our sin and turning to the Lord. And when we do, the Lord extends his mercy and his grace and he returns to us. We find peace, and we're reconciled to him. But I want you to see that repentance is a two-step process. See, if we just turn away from our sin and don't turn to God, our hearts, which are nothing but idol factories, will find something else to chase after. We must turn away from that sin and turn to him. In, in Joel chapter 2, verse 13, Joel's another one of the minor prophets, and um, just a little ways back, but it'll be up on the screen. After telling them to rend their hearts and not their garments, here's what he says. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. It is the same story, Old Testament or New Testament. God calls us to turn and return. The, the message of encouragement doesn't even stop there because I believe Zechariah knew what the people were thinking. Okay, that sounds good, but look at the mess that we're in. We have no army. We, we have no power. We have no authority. The nation is in ruins. The temple is in ruins. We've been living with frustration for 16 years. So in order to counter that argument, look again at verse 3. Zechariah uses a very special title for God. He says, therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Fifty-three times in the book of Zechariah, he uses that title, the Lord of hosts. That word hosts is the Hebrew word sabah, and it literally means strength or power. It can also refer to unlimited resources that are at God's command. Throughout the entire Old Testament prophets, the idea of the Lord of hosts came to mean that God was the Lord and master of the entire universe, that he is the sovereign king. So Zechariah is saying to them, it's the Lord of hosts who's calling you back. Yes, I know things are really bad. I know there's problems. I know you're frustrated. I know it's coming. But return to this gracious, this merciful God who also has all the power necessary to handle whatever situation that you're in. This mighty king, this sovereign Lord of the universe. You would expect that, that this king would require subservience by the people who have been away from him and coming to return to ask him for anything. Uh, probably just like, like the Wizard of Oz responded to the Tin Man. You dare ask 
the great and powerful Oz for a heart, do you? You clinking, clanking, clattering collection of collisionist junk. No, this sovereign king welcomes them back, invites them back into a relationship because of grace right here in the Old Testament. He lovingly asked them to voluntarily return to a relationship with him. And I want you to see that God must make the first move. He must invite them. You don't just saunter into the presence of a holy God without an invitation. None of us would think about just walking into Governor Ducey's office and expecting him to just invite us in or, or any other leader for that matter. In fact, in the Old Testament days, the, the people knew that you never, never went into the presence of a king without invitation. In, in the book of Esther, when, when Mordecai, her uncle, asks her to go to King Xerxes to uh, ask for mercy for the people of Israel, here's how Esther responds in chapter 4, verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king for 30 days. You just didn't go into the presence of a king without an invitation. And here Zechariah invites them in. And it's not like being invited into the wizard's back room. It's being invited into the presence of a loving heavenly father. He's calling us to return. He loves us. He desires to turn away from his anger and bring blessing. So first he must invite them. Secondly, he tells them how they are to come. Well, sort of. He, he tells them they don't need to come by doing some type of activity. They don't have to bring the witch's broomstick. They don't have to come with some religious activity like four Hail Marys and two Our Fathers. Just come. Just come to your senses. Turn away from your sin and come back to him. There's a beautiful picture of this in, in Luke chapter 15, a very familiar story of the, the prodigal son, this son who wanted, <clears throat> wanted his father dead, who couldn't even wait for the funeral, who asked for his inheritance in advance, and he took that money and squandered it in the most terrible ways. And when he came to the end of his money and the end of himself, he thought, I'll just go back. I'll be a servant. I will stay in the slaves' quarters, but I'm better off at least there. And as he came back and his father saw him from far away, he invited him not to the servants' quarters, but into his home, and not only into his home, but he killed a fatted calf and threw a party. That's the kind of king, that's the kind of father that God is and is calling us to return to. Edwin Orr, um, he was an evangelist, he said uh, this, he said, repentance is the first word of the gospel. Therefore, repentance is a message for Christians and non-Christians alike. Because there are two distinct types of repentance. The first is a turning to God. And the second is a returning to God. First, for those who would not call themselves Christians, having a right relationship with God begins with a single act of repentance, followed by a turning to him in faith. 
That act of repentance involves a change of mind about ourselves, a recognition of our inability to solve our sin problem, to meet the standards of a holy God, to recognize the bad news, and then in faith, believing the good news that because God so loved the world and because of his righteous wrath against sin, he sent Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to take on flesh, to become a man, and to pay the penalty for our sin by dying at the cross of Calvary so that we might be brought into a relationship with him and God's righteous wrath might be satisfied. We can receive God's forgiveness and be brought into a relationship with him, which is the deepest need of every person on the planet. That invitation comes through Jesus, who is the only way to be invited into the presence of God. That invitation is God's kindness at its highest expression, forgiving and restoring sinners who deserve God's wrath. And you know what? That's really good news. But there's also good news for Christians, for those of us who are following Christ and yet who have turned away. No matter how far you've turned, no matter how long you've gone, the message is the same. Repent. Turn from that sin and return to him. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. He's calling you back. And for Christians, it's not a one-time event. It is a continual process. We must repent daily, regularly. It should be repentance, the most used tool in the Christian's toolbox. It's not the type of thing that we only pull out for the so-called big sins. Martin Luther put it this way in the very first of the 95 theses that he nailed to that Wittenberg church door. Luther said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed that the entire life of the believer be one of repentance. It is a lifelong process, and it is one that we learn and do and grow in. But it must be regular. We need to be people in 2016 who regularly practice repentance. And every time we do, God will return to us with open arms just as that prodigal's father did, just as he promises. If we turn to him confessing our sins, he turns to us with his restoring grace and forgiveness. When we turn to him with our poverty and need, he turns to us with his glorious riches and satisfying fullness. We turn with our misery and fears to his everlasting comfort and hope. We turn with our doubt to his faithfulness. We turn with our hatred to his love. We turn with our anxiety to his peace, our sickness to his health, our sin to his cleansing, our discouragement and despair to his encouragement. And then he restores that unbelievable peace that passes all human understanding and brings us the unspeakable joy that Tim talked about Thursday night that Jesus came to bring us. And when we repent, when we turn, we have a restored relationship with our Creator and Heavenly Father. So maybe you're asking, what does this have to do with a New Year's resolution? 
Good question. Well, most every resolution that we make is all about externals. It's changing a habit like stop eating sweets or starting something positive like exercising or, or, or stopping something negative like, like smoking. But God says that we change our outward deeds by first changing our inward direction. Before we can accomplish anything of, of lasting value, we must examine our hearts, see the sin, hate it the way God hates it, turn from it, and then return to him with our whole heart. You know what? Then we can really start fresh, not because we wipe the slate clean, but because God promises to do so. In 1 John 1, 9, John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleansed, clean, wiped away, fresh start, and one that is real because it's given to us from God, not something that we try to do on our own. I believe that's why that God sent both Haggai and Zechariah to preach to the exiles at the very same time. You see, they were absolutely mired in frustration that things could not change. In, in Haggai chapter 1, verse 6, he gives us a very good picture of what's happening in Israel at this time. He says, You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Year after year, they made New Year's resolutions that we're going to get this temple built this year. We're going to get our businesses established. We're going to get our homes settled. And year after year, because all they were focused on was the externals, they had frustration after frustration after frustration. See, Haggai's mission was the rebuilding of the temple, the, real, the rebuilding of the physical, external work. Zechariah aimed for the internal, the rebuilding of the spiritual ruins. God is letting them know they were to do more than just finish the building. They also needed to get their hearts right. And that's the point. Our resolutions, even if they're really good stuff like volunteering at the church or, or giving to the poor, cannot take the place of a devoted heart to God, of a heart that is willing to turn away from those distractions and disobedience to Him because God wants a change of heart as well as a change in behavior. If we only read Haggai... Without Zechariah, then we probably would assume that God was most interested in rebuilding the temple. But when we read both of them, we see it's not the building that's most important. It's the people's hearts who are doing the building that is most important to God. That's why, in addition to sending Haggai, I did that last time too. Haggai tried to make them one, Haggariah. <laughs> that's why, in addition to the command to build, through Haggai, God sends Zechariah to tell them to repent and return. God wanted those who were doing the work for him to be fully, fully committed to him. The, the work is very important. 
they needed a temple. They needed a place to worship. They needed a place for sacrifices. But what is clear is that their holiness was more important. Look, Haggai's two little chapters, Zechariah's 14 chapters, they were not to be satisfied only in the completion of the temple. Their heart and holiness were of primary importance. Again, as you think about it, at the time that Zechariah brought the message, they were already back to work. They had heard Haggai. They said, okay, we're going to go do it. We're going to physically serve. But though they were physically serving the Lord, though they were carrying out this great work of rebuilding the temple, God still sent Zechariah to say, return to me. He said, though you're doing the work, your hearts are not fully turned toward God. So if we let our New Year's resolutions, our, our external activities, our physical works for God be a substitute for truly walk, walking with Him, we will experience the same kind of frustration. We will experience the same kind of failure. And, and for those of you who are, are not Christians, who, who have not followed Christ, if you think that doing something or the fact that your good works outweigh your bad or that there's some type of activity that can make you right with God, it's just not true. In fact, Jesus addressed this very clearly in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. He said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those activities without our hearts turned towards God can't save us and can't make us fulfilled. No matter what resolutions we have determined to set before us in 2016, no matter what kind of changes that we desire to make, if they don't flow out of a repentant heart that desires first to be right with God, they won't last and you know what? Even if they do, even if by sheer willpower you stick it out till August at the gym, it's only going to make you proud. In fact, sometimes success is the greatest enemy and pushes us further away from God. But turning our heart away from sin and fully toward God during and before the work will lead to a much greater chance of success in whatever change, whatever resolution we desire to make. You know what? And even if we don't, even if we flame out by March uh, at the gym, when we get our hearts right with God, it will lead to humility instead of pride. It will lead to worship and, and not idolatry. Now, maybe you're here today and, and you've never made that initial turn, that, that first act of repentance, turning towards God. I want you to know that you can turn away from the frustration and the emptiness and failure. Maybe God is saying to you today to turn to me from your sin, and you know what? I'll meet you right there, and I will establish a relationship with you that will last forever. Maybe you're a Christian today who has some really good ideas about change and new things in 2016. First, you need to get closer to him and far away from your sin in order to have real change. In 2008, when uh, Barack Obama was running for president, he ran on a platform of hope and change. 
How we doing? And I will tell you that if your hope for change is in a different political party than what's in power, I guarantee you, you will be disappointed. If your hope for change is in anything but in a right relationship with the creator king of the universe who loves you, you'll be disappointed. But I promise you, even if things are in a mess, even if the temple is in ruins, even if the city is in ruins, the Lord of hosts, the gracious and merciful God will be with you and will give you that peace and joy that is absolutely incomprehensible and will give us the impetus that we need to make those changes in the new year. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are so easily distracted, that we so often run from you, that we see things that we think will satisfy us, things that we think will make us happy or change that will give us the solution to our problems. And yet there you are with the simple answer, repent and return. I pray, Lord, that for all of us here today, Christians or non, that we will make that turn and head in your direction so that we might be the people that can be salt and light and bring you honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.